Welcome Paris to my bedroom um, where we are recording the second episode of 20 something expert podcast. Um, we thought we would also touch on the context in which we're operating just so that our listeners aren't alarmed by the fact that we're in the same room. <laughs> we are socialized, well, socially isolating um, from either side of my bed. There's at least six feet between us. So rest assured. And um, Paris isn't touching any of the light switches in my house. Because no, she's definitely carrying some germs. <laughs> so, um, but how I know Paris. So Paris is actually one of the employees um, at Founders Academy, which is the alt MBA program that I'm currently doing, which I'm sure I'll get into in one of these episodes. Um, and she is an all round superstar. She somehow, through the seven weeks in which we've known her, has revealed herself to be a data science whiz, a product management aficionado, and to have built like half our online workspace on Notion. So that's kind of... And then everyone was shocked to find out that Paris was only 23. So she barely qualifies for the age minimum to be on this podcast. So we thought, let's have her on. Let's hear a bit more about her background. Um, and why she's such an overachiever and make us all feel bad about ourselves. <laughs> so I'll start with the first question, which is, Paris, please describe every job slash degree you've ever done in five minutes. Every job. Okay. Slash degree. <laughs> um, okay. So I did all of the boring jobs. I've worked since I was 13. So I was always out earning money, grafting. Um, and then my official degrees and jobs. So I first did, um, physics degree, which is not really anything I do She's now. A smart girl. Yeah. So I studied physics at Imperial College London. Um, and why did I do that? I guess I really liked maths. And so there was like a natural progression to go and do um, a degree in physics or sciences. So that's what I did. And then during my first year um, in physics, I did a data science internship at iWaka, which is a fintech startup in London. How did you find that out? Um, I, oh, funny story. Okay, so I worked um, in the alumni office at Imperial. So I heard that there was this job going where you could phone up alumni and ask them for money <laughs> for the university. Yeah, well. And so I was like, this would be a really great way to network. So all the way through, I think it will be a common theme that most of my opportunities came through networking. That is, sorry, to yeah. interject again, my listeners from my one other podcast will know I do this frequently, <laughs> but that is such an imperial mindset to be like, what kind <laughs> of job can I get that will allow yeah. me to network? I feel like all of the London unis are so obsessed with kind of being networking. in that. Yeah. yeah. Walking around in suits and doing spring week final right so my first year of uni I found out about this job um and then I did that and then whilst doing the job I spoke to the co-founder of iwaka and I basically went through my whole pitch and then I got to the end and I was like okay do you have any internships available um and he was a bit confused he was like are you not a year one student so like what could you really do and I just basically said that I work in data and numbers. And he was like, okay, yeah, you could work within our data science team potentially. So you can come in for an interview. And then um, after that, we'll see where we go from there. So that was like a nice little connection. So first internship was as a data scientist. Um, and then after that, my second year, I kind of got in my head that I wanted to learn how to code. And so um, I found two free courses. So the code first girls course yeah. I think it's called so I did two of them the first one was um 
in web design and then the second one was in Ruby. And after that, I managed to get the skills to kind of apply for software engineering internships. Wow. So then my second year, I had it fixed in my head that I wanted to work at Google. Like for me, it just seemed like this really cool place to work. Um, so I did a bit more networking and I signed up to all of the um, like engineering meetups that were in London. And I just hoped that maybe I'd bump into someone <laughs> that worked at Google um, and ask them kind of how you can work there and what you have to do. Spoiler alert, you did. Yes, spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, so I actually found someone on LinkedIn who previously went to Imperial and worked at Google and he agreed to meet me for coffee. So I asked him about like Google and how I could get there. And then I applied for the internship. So then I did the first internship, which is actually called um, the STEP engineering program. And then after that, I was in my third year of uni and then I did the associate product management internship at Google again. So kind of shift in role. Um, and then I started to realize that kind of product was something that I was really interested in and more people side of things rather than just engineering. So then I switched up my degree. So I was on a four year program in physics, um, but I stopped that after three years, graduated with my bachelor's and then started doing the global innovation design program, which sounds very pretentious. Um, it's a double masters with Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art. So it's like a mix between design and engineering. Um, and then that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I'm in my second year of that. And then whilst I was in my second year, I joined Founders Academy as a product designer. Um, and I started working more in like learning design, education design. Um, and that's how I know Millie. And then this is where I am now. So I'm kind of at the end of my master's program and working with Founders Academy um, and kind of navigating my next step from there. So when do you graduate? I graduate in two and a half months. And will you be looking for a job then? Yes, hopefully. <laughs> so this podcast could be your This ne- could be the next networking. calling. Well, and either we employ you, because obviously I'll be looking to take on full-time for you soon. But, um, or some of one of our listeners might be the next contact that gets you a job <laughs> in the wake of an incoming global recession. Yeah, I'm really good at remote working. <laughs> <laughs> I own a laptop. I'm a bit of a I'm badass. I'm really on good Slack. at emailing, video <laughs> yeah. calls, the lot. I could do it. Um, well, that's so awesome to hear about all of the things that you were doing. Did you ever, were any of your mates like going on holidays to Ayanapa in Mallorca yes. and you were like, nah, I'm going to do an internship at Google? Yeah. So every single summer um, I was doing internships, but I was working abroad. So my internships were in different countries. So the first one was in London and then the second one was in Warsaw. And then the third one was in Zurich. Interesting. Yeah. How was it in Warsaw? Were you by yourself? Yeah, so it was actually amazing. Um, I had never been to Poland before, never been to Warsaw, and I had no idea what it was going to be like, and I think I was pretty naive in what I thought it was going to be. Um, and it was actually super cosmopolitan, and it was a really, really fun place to be. There were loads of bars, there were like jazz cafes. Um, it was a really nice place to be, and it was so cheap. So compared yeah. to being a student in London, like I went to Warsaw and with the money I earned, I could do like go out every day to eat. I could go out to drink every day. 
Um, so even though I didn't get to do the like mini girls holidays, I definitely went away. I did things. So I wasn't like just working the whole time. Like, well, it was a laugh, but yeah, you're definitely more skilled now for yeah. having done that with your summers than what we did. Yeah. And I managed to always push, push my internships back a bit. So I would say that I graduated from the year like a month later. So that I always had like a month of summer and then I would work and then go back to uni. Nice. Um, so... What you've done is quite varied, and you've said yes. you've done a bit of software engineering, done a bit of product management. Yeah. Would you say that you've had quite like an intentional career so far in what you've chosen, mm-hmm. or did you just fall into all of those things? Um, I think I've learned a lot along the way about how you should and shouldn't choose jobs. So I think when I was younger, I mean, obviously I'm still young now, but younger than I am now, <laughs> um, I think, well, first of all, choosing a physics degree in hindsight, I think one of the reasons I chose it was because it was a good degree to have. Yeah. And I think it's the same reason a lot of people choose their degrees. And then you get three years in and then you realise, okay, I don't actually want to be doing this as my career. So I think, first of all, it was always about what looked good. So a physics degree looks really good. It's really applicable. You can apply it to lots of different places. And then Google, even though Google, I had an amazing time there, um... Google's one of those places where you want to work there even though you know nothing about what it's like to work there. Yeah. And so everyone's just like, oh, amazing, you work at Google. That's so cool. I want to work at Google. And so that's initially what happened. I just thought it would be a really cool place to work. And so I did everything I would need to do. Like I covered the computer science first year just so I could do the um, internship interviews without actually thinking, do I want to be a software engineer? So I just knew like to do the interview, I had to do this. Check, did it, and then got through the interview. Check, I'm doing the internship. And then when I did my software engineering internship, I realized, oh, no, wait, I don't want to be a software engineer. And it was a kind of like realization, okay, the people around me that are loving this job, they're nothing like me. Um, And the other interns, they had completely different ideas of having fun. They wanted to sit in their room and code all day, all night. Whereas for me, I had learned how to code just so I could do the interviews. Mm. So then I sort of started pivoting to like, okay, actually, what do I find interesting and what do I want to do as a job? Um, And looking more at me. So like, I love working with people. And so it didn't make sense to be a software engineer. And so that's why product management made sense because I got to coordinate with lots of different stakeholders and lots of different people. Um, And then one of the most um, interesting things I've done recently was within my master's program, we did a module called Vision. And you basically had two weeks to just think, what do you really, really enjoy? And what's your purpose? (laughs) It sounds a bit cliche, but it was the first time where I'd actually sat for two weeks and done nothing but think like what I find interesting what problems I want to look at um, working on in the world. And after that, it just completely changed my mindset of so many different things. So whereas before I was thinking about the role or the company, now I was thinking much more about like the purpose of my work. And the problem you're solving. Yeah, and the problem that I want to solve for. And so I think um, where I'm at now is a very privileged position in that I really understand what the purpose is that I kind of want to serve. And so for me, it's education. Um, I think like I reflected a lot on when I was growing up and there were lots of people who didn't have the opportunity to go to university and things and then now they kind of don't have as many opportunities as some of my friends that did and I just thought it was so unfair and so I then kind of devoted all my research all my time to how could I 
kind of contribute to the education system to make it more accessible and make it fairer. And then now it's like seems so obvious to me the kinds of roles I do or the kinds of companies I've worked for. Yeah. So it's like doing it the other way around rather than just landing in a company for the name. I think it's so smart because once you figure out what problem you want to solve for, then it's you've got a destination. So you kind of just use whatever mode suits you best to get there. But if you don't know what your destination is, like I have right. no idea what I want to achieve in that part of my life yeah. and what problem's the most interesting it then, like you're saying, it doesn't funnel anything down. So then I can find myself in this position where I'm like, oh, I really should have studied computer science because that's the mm-hmm. most employable thing right now yeah. rather than philosophy. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, would I have enjoyed it? I don't know, probably mm-hmm. not, considering I didn't have an interest in it really early on. Yeah. Um, but I think that level of unknowing can make you insecure, which mm-hmm. then can drive you to just what would be the best fallback plan yeah so it's really amazing that you've come to the stage where now you have such a clear vision and direction that mm-hmm. you but you've also managed to equip yourself with so many yeah. hard skills so it's kind of yeah a good I think place to be at. um especially when I look back at some of my friends in uni so the people that I did physics with um they were so so clever and they got all the best grades but they were doing it like just for the grades. Yeah. And then when it came to it, I didn't have anywhere near as good grades as they did, but I was still managing to do all these opportunities that they wanted to do. And I think it's the combination of like, I wasn't just there to get the grade. I wasn't just there to get this degree. I was like making connections outside of the university and like meeting different people. And then afterwards trying to figure out like what kind of purpose it is that I want to work towards. And whereas for them, this might sound a bit um, stereotypical, but for a lot of them, they just finished the course, got the best grades in the year, and then went to work for finance companies who were yeah. giving us like free smoothies at lunchtime. And it was just because they were the only people they had come in contact with over the time that they did their degree because they were so fixed on this one thing. But that you're so right about like with why education is so interesting because it's kind of the people that especially when you're not going to like a private school where everyone's expected to go mm-hmm. to university, it's kind of the expectations of what's set for you. If you go to a school where only 10 people are going to university, then it's not the default position. Yeah. So you need to be really acutely aware of how you're going to get there to mm-hmm. have that as an option. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same for jobs at uni. So when you're at uni, you might think that the only things that exist are like law, finance and consulting, because those are the only people that are around you and approaching you. And so it's really hard to find your groove afterwards because mm-hmm. you just don't know. Like there may be so many companies that would really benefit from your skill set, but if you're not made aware of them and you've only mm-hmm. seen three tracks that hire for the same type of person. Yeah. And I think it's easy to say, okay, spend two weeks and try and figure out what the thing is that your purpose yeah. is and what's your problem. And I'm sure everyone wants to do that. And maybe some people have, and they're still like, okay, I still don't know what it is. And that hasn't helped me. And so on that point, I think there's two key things that I've always tried to do. So one of them is um, really take all the opportunities you get given. So even though I say on reflection, okay, I found out I didn't want to be a software engineer. Okay, I found out I didn't want to be a data scientist. Okay, I didn't want to do physics. The fact that I did those, I've now managed to kind of cross out the things that I don't want to do, which can be actually as useful as finding that one thing you do and sometimes it is like method by elimination that you kind of go through these things but had I sat down for ages and thought oh do I really want to do engineering I mean it was three months I did it and then realized okay I don't want to do it anymore and so I think 
taking every opportunity you have and really driving hard with it. I worked so hard during those internships, even when I realized I don't want to do this as a job, just because I knew it was like a pivot point. So Mm. I think I'm also a big believer in get all the cards and options out that you can and then decide from there. So I didn't just half do the internship in data. I didn't half do the internship in engineering. I did all of them to the best of my ability so that then I could sit back and say, okay, if I wanted to be an engineer, I could. If I wanted to be this, I could. And then I got to decide from like putting the hard work in first. Um, So that's one thing I think like every opportunity, just go for it and push it as far as you can. And then the second thing is be brave to ditch it. Yeah. So my transition from studying physics as a bachelor's to then swapping to doing like a design degree is huge. But had I not done it, I wouldn't come to this kind of realization of like what my purpose is and types of things I want to work on. And so I think I didn't quit my physics degree. I graduated and then took the next um, option that I thought was going to be like the best one for me. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I also think that there's definitely a very you've got a very complementary skill set now because you've got that side of really practical design, but also the kind of theory that you get from sort of rigorous analytical theory that you get from studying something like physics. So I suppose you weren't doing something that was such a risk because you were really adding to your skill set, which is another point I have, (laughs) which is I would say from an outsider looking at you that you've managed to really upskill yourselves in different areas of um learning which makes you quite a well-rounded and multi-pronged person and I can imagine that really insulates you from potential things that might happen in the future of work where some people will be put out of work but you'll have such a diverse skill set was that intentional or do you think it's just you're just naturally very drawn to different things um so I don't think it was intentional at all but I completely, I completely see what you're saying. And I also think um, I had this really interesting conversation before where when I first got into education, I thought the biggest thing was helping people realise what their purpose was and helping them understanding about themselves and having self-knowledge and looking at the world around them and finding the problems they want to solve. And then I had this conversation with um, my tutor and she was saying, not everyone can be an actor not everyone can be a painter not everyone can be these things a podcaster yeah yeah not everyone can be a podcaster um and so it's a really interesting standpoint of it's all well and good me saying oh I tried all these things but they're all very useful things to have right if I decided maybe I want to be a painter and then a dancer and then a maybe it wouldn't be so, um, I wouldn't be so confident in saying, okay, yeah, just go forward with whatever it is, because it's a privilege to be able to think of something you really want to do and just go for it and then swap and then swap. Um, but to answer your question, no, it wasn't intentional to build up such a varied skill set. I think, okay, I think it was intentional in terms of me developing myself, but not intentional in terms of looking at the world around me. Mm-hmm. So I looked at myself and I said, okay, amazing. I can do the technical side now, but I want to be able to improve my visual communication and I want to be able to do design. And so I kind of evaluated my own skill set and said, okay, what else would I like to um, be good at? And then obviously it turned to like the design and more creative side to complement the technical skills I had. But I didn't go out into work and think, 
what do they want me to have yeah. now, if like, that makes what sense. Empl- what would Google Yeah, what would for? make yeah. me even more employable? Um, but what would make you even more employable? <laughs> like, say you were going to, your next, so you've yeah. crossed off design skills, what's the next thing you'd like, be, like to be able to do? Mm. Um, so, in... So I would like to be better at more um, policy side of things. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. So I think um, technical skills, great. Design, amazing. I could be good at visually communicating ideas. And I think that's one of the most important things. So you can kind of convey your ideas to other people so they can get on board. Um, but policy area, I think because I'm interested in education and um, one of the huge things in education is policy. Like, I would love to be able to have those kinds of conversations. Um, And I think policy, similar to other big institutes, you really have to be able to talk the language to be respected. Yeah. Um, Whereas, like, the big tech companies, they kind of see the best in everyone and everyone has their own way of communicating and all these things. But within academia and within um, jobs around policy, I think it's quite different and you have to really be able to talk the language. So I think that would be a good direction. So you need people at DEFRA <laughs> to be listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got a couple friends that I want to send this podcast to <laughs> at DEFRA. So I'm going to hook you up, Paris, don't you worry. Perfect. Um, that's really interesting. I definitely think what you're saying about skilling yourself in policy aligns it with what you're saying your purpose and your vision is around education. I think it's the same with global health as well. Like I have a friend... Rachel, who works in um, TB, so tuberculosis prevention around the world, mm-hmm. and um, it's very much the same in global health. Like you need lots of people need to have masters in policy or masters in global health or international development mm-hmm. to be sort of respected and taken seriously in that, um, because it's such a complex field with its own languages and you know it's managing right. stakeholder networks of different countries and mm-hmm. stuff. So that would be really interesting. And I'm sure you'll do it. <laughs> I, I reckon like we'll meet up in a Stay year tuned. and you'll be like, next yeah. year we'll be like, podcast and policy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, um, sorry, one it. more thing I wanted to say. I think it's very easy for people to say, um, yeah, networking is the way I got this opportunity or that opportunity. But I think networking isn't just about meeting more people and being connected to more people. I think it's also about um, seeing what good looks like. And so now that I'm thinking back, there's been lots of times where I've seen an expert and I thought, I really want to be able to do things the way they do them. And then I've kind of broken down what skills they have and thought, what am I missing to be able to do that kind of role or to come across in that kind of way? And so an example is um, like other people I've worked with, they've been really good at um, sketching out their ideas on whiteboards as soon as they have them and so they get up straight away they like sketch out what they're trying to explain in a really visual way whereas I had always written notes like in words yeah. and not really use pictures and so from seeing that I thought I want to be really good at visually communicating um, a visual communication and then I would like look up a course on it and then I would see what kind of skills complement it and then I would look at um, the types of um, roles and things that you need to kind of complement these skills and so I think having experts that you can kind of admire and breaking down their skills has really helped me figuring out like what's the next move to make if that makes sense I really think that that no that does make sense and I think that really comes as well more informally in terms of your peer groups 
because I think that I'm 25 and at this age most of my friends are on their second job so that one that you've had after your classic grad scheme after uni is the sort of what do I actually want to be doing and loads of them are in really interesting spaces and quite different to me which is why I wanted to start this podcast because you know my friends at Apple or at HSBC they're not the vice president but they're still learning about software engineering and how that and what the data privacy concerns of Apple are doing or you know how they can apply what they're doing for strategic investments at HSBC to their own ICEs and that's the sort of stuff I really learn and so I get those little snippets of best practice of those domains of my life like finance or engineering um, without being in the career myself but it also gives me a taster for would I want to do that and I, fr- I know friends that have seen other friends become junior doctors and then have decided quite later on that, that actually maybe becoming a doctor is something that they want to do and they could apply themselves in a really specific part of medicine. And I think it's very much, like you're saying, your network, even informally, not just people you're meeting on LinkedIn and then going for coffees with, but really show you what's out there and, and what good looks like and what you could get involved with. Right, and finding out what exactly is that role or... What yeah. would you even be doing on a day-to-day? I think definitely speak to as many people as you can who do the role first um, and then find out what they do and don't do, more importantly. Yeah, because I, I guess it's so easy to be swept up in brands. Yeah. Which I definitely do get as well. Anyone that works for like any cool company I respect, I'm like, oh, I want your job. And then they're like, mm, it's pretty probably the same as yours right now. Yeah, I saw this really interesting, um, like I love a framework, but it was saying how our generation, how we choose jobs now. So before it was like job security and um, having a steady income and stuff like that. Whereas now our generation, we look at three things. So brand sexiness, yeah. um, the challenge of the problem. So are they interesting challenges? Um, and, oh no, I forgot. Oh, and our purpose, the so thing that I keep for. saying over and over again, purpose. <laughs> so brand sexiness, interesting challenges and purpose. So those three things is like where you want to work. Okay, so just on that note, coronavirus, sexy brand, everyone's talking about it. Right. <laughs> Interesting challenges, especially for education, and definitely a purpose which you want to apply yourself to. How do you think that the education sector is going to be changed through what we're experiencing with coronavirus and schools being shut down now? And do you think there's any benefits to come from it? Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting, and I'm... I try to be sensitive talking about it. Um, but for me, I find it so interesting. It's such interesting design constraints. And so for me as a designer, the more constraints you have, um, the better it is because then you can kind of get rid of these sort of solutions. And I've seen two really different ways of dealing with this problem. So first way is um, at my university, which is very much like academic route. And I've always said that they're kind of a bit old fashioned in the way that they do things. And so when I'm speaking to my tutors at... Um, not to name names, but Royal College of Art, <laughs> um, they are much more kind of defeatist about it. And they aren't really thinking about this as a way that we can kind of innovate new solutions and workarounds and we can all get so much better at being global citizens and being able to work from home and being able to um, build relationships remotely. Like I'm seeing this as so many opportunity areas Whereas their impression was kind of, we've never been in a situation like this before. The course will be completely different. We don't have time to redesign it. 
Um, and then at Founders Academy, we've had a completely different approach, whereas now uh, we want to go virtual first. And so we're actually all getting together and thinking, how can we quickly redesign the program for the next like few weeks you have on campus and make them as good as they would have been had this not happened? And actually even better in the future, because if we can make a program that's virtual first, then suddenly it's much more accessible. Um, like I said, it ties into the idea of being global citizens. Um, and also there's so many tools and things we can utilize that potentially we weren't using before because of this happening. And so we're all being forced now to go into this like brand new world where everyone's working virtually. So I think it's a super exciting time, um, especially for education, because education's still a bit behind, I would say, healthcare in terms of innovation. So healthcare is having a really big um, boom in terms of using technology. And we have all like the Babylons. Um, and it's really moving towards that way. Whereas education, I think, is still a bit behind and it's still very much um, dominated by these huge institutes who haven't really changed their program very much. Um, so I think it's an interesting time to really push other education providers to become a bit more like how the world actually is. Do you think there are any ed tech companies that really are doing exciting things at the moment? Um, yeah, so... I think the learning platforms are good, but the only thing about learning platforms is at the moment the drop-off rate is so high. So you've got like the LinkedIn learning um, and obviously you've got all the online courses. You can do like Code Academy depending on which one you're looking at. But I just think that right now this blended learning I haven't seen rolled out on like a huge scale yet. Just the blended offline online yeah or... online offline yeah so like there's lots of online and then there's some blended um but i think it's also a really difficult product and service to enter the market with so like if you have a blended service where you want to implement it in schools it's really hard to build those partnerships and it's really hard to um, kind of integrate that on school systems on like a huge scale and so I think when you look at all the accelerators and stuff education is actually one of the arms that they kind of struggle to find as many startups and tools um, to like fund compared to other things like healthcare or retail and things like that so I don't know I think it's an interesting area at the moment very interesting we'll see what comes out it might be that you know, primary school and secondary school look so different in a year because right. of the sort of interlude of a few months that we've had now. Yeah. And the boom of ed tech companies. They're the only ones that I see are still rapidly hiring on LinkedIn at the moment. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. like Class Dojo, Atom Learning. I don't know if you know any of the other names. Yeah. Um, and also I think something that I'm really pushing for at the moment. So in education, there's two things I'm really interested in. One of them um, is ownership by design. So uh, this idea of you kind of owning your education, which in primary and secondary school, you don't really like you're given a timetable. It's created for you. You have a you have a few options when you turn like 14. But other than that, it's pretty much laid out how it is. And the teacher owns the learning environment. But I think if the student could own their own learning environment, learning environment, um, then that could be huge. So like ownership, I think is going to be a huge thing in education and something that I think technology could really support. That's so interesting. I've never thought of that before because I guess as a an adult, you kind of do in a, in a really informal sense. Like you can cultivate what books you're reading, you can cultivate which podcasts you're listening mm -hmm. to for that kind of lifelong learning. But I guess, yeah, in an institution, you're very 
tied to that institution there's no sense of, especially as a child there's no sense of ownership right. but I can imagine you'd be so much more invested in it if you did have that chance like I was listening to this podcast with the CEO of Stripe and he was talking about when he was 15 he asked his parents if he could skip a year of school because he just wanted to learn how to code mm-hmm. and I guess if your kid does that and you're happy with them doing it because mm-hmm. you think that there's mm-hmm. value that's great but it's more amazing that the kid's so invested mm-hmm. that they're even asking yeah. for that so I actually had the worst attendance in my school. And you're um, such a failure now. So this really disproves so our model. I'm like, now let's all lean towards our kids. Don't go to school. No, um, I'm not pushing for that. But I do think it's interesting you would draw that link because you're right. So I managed to take ownership over my education because my mum trusted that I was working. I just didn't want the environment that was at school where it was so many people. And I had to work on whatever they told me I had to work on. Whereas I would create like my own learning structure and I knew everything that I had to um tick off and the same in university like my attendance was really poor which I think is quite common yeah (laughs) um but yeah I think ownerships is definitely a huge thing around education and also the people who remain engaged in the education system either their um, interests align with the program that exists so that's like handy that it's similar to the things they want to do anyway or they have really really strong role models that kind of force them to stay engaged and so I think looking at engagement in education is really interesting especially in children um, when you consider some people don't have those role models so um, ownership's one thing and the other thing is self-determined learning so self-determined learning is the idea that intrinsic motivation is always much better than extrinsic. Yeah. Um, and so in order to be intrinsically motivated, I think of it as like you define your own goal and then you kind of have this education journey or plan to get to that goal. But um, in schools, we don't really have much flexibility for what that goal is. And there's not really much flexibility for how you get there either. So I think um, like these... Uh, technology tools could really assist in making education especially for like primary and secondary focused around these two things more amazing so that's really really interesting to get your perspective on the kind of education points of interest (laughs) struggling with how to describe that the kind of two things you want to focus on with education and how you might think that this um coronavirus situation Mm. is going to aid or abet those in terms of to draw it back to the theme of the podcast, some practical advice you can give to other 20-somethings on um, sort of discovering their purpose or reinventing yeah. their career. What other key practical takeaways? Um, You've mentioned a couple already, if yeah. you need thought starters yeah. around like um, knowing, asking your network to give you advice on like what is involved in their jobs yeah. and like taking every opportunity. Um, One of the things I think is super important and easy to um, kind of forget is always turning up. So whenever I, so for example, I'm someone who, if I'm interested in something, I'll find all the meetups in London that have it and I'll sign up to them and I'll register and put it in my calendar. I'll then find all the podcasts and books and things like this, but more important, like people things. I think it's easy to, on the day, not want to go. And I know everybody knows this, but it's something that I always tell myself. It's so important to turn up. Every single meetup that I've ever gone to, I end up speaking to somebody, whether it's who I thought I was going to speak to or not. Um, So every single thing I go to, always something comes out of it. So I think turning up to things that you book, meetings, conversations with friends even, I think is super important. Um, Another thing I think is... 
having conversations um, about your purpose and your goals with as many different people as possible. So if I have something on my mind, for example, um, like the next direction I want to take, I will somehow introduce it into all the conversations I have. <laughs> and it's so interesting, though, having everybody's different perspectives, because once again, you have that one conversation that you never thought was going to make much of a difference to your decision and then you say something and I might be talking to you and you might say oh I know somebody who did that program and they said this and that and that and it's just something that would have never come up before um and then in terms of purpose I think the two-week thing I don't know how easy it is to kind of fit into your life but having two weeks off from reading anything that was not related to me discovering what this purpose was, was so, so helpful for me. And I think it's hard to kind of pin on what that is, first of all. So for me, for example, my journey throughout that, um, I knew the demographic of person that I really wanted to help. And that was um, young kids who grew up in poverty. And so I didn't know what it was, whether it was going to be like social housing or education or healthcare or managing finances or like there's so many things that could have been. But I started reading up more about like the statistics around that demographic. And then more and more I started to think about so like the five whys. So, for example, a few things that came up was um, like high suicide rates in um, young white working class boys. And then I went back again, okay, so why is that the case? And usually it was because they were unemployed or they had um, like um, unstable incomes. Okay, why is that the case? Oh, it's because they're more likely to drop out of school than anybody else. Um, like, who are these people? There's like a million kids who aren't in any form of education, employment or training in the UK. And like, when I just kept going back, why, 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 I then realised education was always the why. And so whether it was that I was like really affected by looking at um, suicide rates or looking at changes in benefit systems or looking at homelessness, like homelessness was another one that I thought, okay, maybe homelessness is my thing. But then I kept going back again. Okay, why are these people homeless? Oh, it's because they, um, some of them have got drug or alcohol problems. Why is that? Oh, their parents had that. Okay, so then why was that? Oh, they didn't have any form of education and it always came back to education. Mm. And so it's kind of like a long-winded story to explain what I'm trying to say. But I think the thing is just spending that time and thinking, why am I so upset right now about this program I'm watching to do with um, like young offenders, for example? And then really trying to trace back your five whys. Okay, why were they in that situation? What's the real root cause of this purpose problem that I want to work towards solving? And it all came back to education. And so that was kind of my way of navigating what is my like purpose point. Um, I think that's been really helpful. Um, that's think of catchier things. <laughs> you can think of more, but that is loads. I feel like that's <laughs> enough to keep the readers busy, readers, listeners. Um, so just to summarise those, I actually think that the way you've just spoken about it in terms of the five whys, yeah. um, if you're trying to think about your career or you're trying to reinvent yourself for the next thing, just keep asking why five times. Maybe you'll mm-hmm. get to like a really weird answer and be like, that didn't work. But at least according to Paris, knowing mm-hmm. that that doesn't work is a step in the right direction yeah. as well. And you can try another self-discovery mm-hmm. method. I have one more thing to say. I know she I'm doesn't quit, guys. She doesn't <laughs> quit. Um, we always say this at Founders Academy, thinking of like the startup of you. And so I study design, so that's kind of what I do at the moment, like looking at a problem and trying to go at it in loads of different ways and iterating about the model. But I think it's really helpful to think of yourself as like a startup, um, and you can go on like many different iterations, but as long as you're going 
and then you can kind of cross things off and add things on, then I think that's one of the most important things. Amazing. Um, and just because from last time people were quite interested to keep in touch with Dana after her episode, do you have want to add in any of your social handles or a, you've got a portfolio, right? Because you're a designer. Yes, I do. Um, I don't know if I want to send people to it right now. <laughs> what about Let me your work LinkedIn? on it and you can put it in the um, bio. Um, my LinkedIn is just my name, which is Paris Anne O'Shea. Look her up, guys. She's going to be on to big things. Thanks, Paris, for coming. Bye. Bye.